August is ending, the kids are back in school, and I still don't have the house to myself. Just what the hell? We've got a pair of reviews for your ear holes, and we ask the question, what is a podcast? It's the Benefit of a Doubt podcast. Welcome to the Benefit of a Dowd podcast. I'm your host, Adam Dowd, and this week we have two reviews coming at you from Xiaomi and LG. Well, the reviews are coming from me. The devices are from... you know what I mean. We've got our full review of the Xiaomi Mi Band, followed by a final look at the LG Velvet. But first, of course, we have to get to our news of the week. Starting off the news, you'll recall I did a Tech Yeah segment on Zag products last week. Well, they're so happy, they decided to give my listeners an extra 10% off their order if they use the promo code BOTD. That's BOTD, like Benefit of the Doubt. So head on over to Zag.com and pick up a case, or a battery, or a set of earbuds, or whatever, and use the code BOTD for 10% off, and a thank you very much to our friends at Zag. Last week, we talked about Facebook dropping Oculus accounts in lieu of Facebook accounts. This week, Facebook is pretty much dropping Oculus entirely, basically abandoning the Oculus brand. Its AR-VR division is now called Facebook Reality Labs, and its annual developer conference, Oculus Connect, will now be called Facebook Connect. Facebook Reality Labs is the division in charge of Oculus, Portal, and Spark, one which I love, one which I openly mock, and the last... I've never even heard of. And all this is happening, I think, just so Facebook can justify using the words Facebook and reality in the same sentence. I'm not sure what Facebook is trying to accomplish with this move, except trying to make Oculus even more theirs. TechCrunch points out that they added the word labs, and that could indicate that AR and VR don't contribute much to Facebook's bottom line. No, racists do that. But even so, this is a crappy move by an admittedly crappy company run by terrible people, which tries to bring Oculus more into the fold of the parent company, which means even more integration than we have right now. And yet, despite all that, there's still no Facebook app on the Oculus Quest, and what's up with that? And side note, my son the other day asked if he could start friending people in the Oculus, and it's tied to my account, so that was a hard no. But that also means we're probably going to have to create a Facebook account for my son now, and god damn it. Fitbit announced two new health trackers, the Versa 3 and the Fitbit Sense, and it's the second device that seems a bit more interesting. The Sense costs $329 and brings more health tracking features, such as EKG, FDA pending approval, and more detailed heart activity. But Sense goes a little further with stress detection features. Basically, you can take a stress reading by placing your hand over the screen and breathing. The Fitbit will monitor your heart rate and also detect your skin's temperature and, you know, conditions, like is it sweaty or clammy, and then give you a reading about your stress level over time. Of course, this goes back to when the doctor asks you if you've been under a great deal of stress lately, and you say, why, yes, doctor, now that you mention it, I have been over the age of 12 and breathing. And I mean, let's face it, folks, we're all stressed. Hi, are you alive? Congratulations, you're stressed. But maybe Fitbit can tell you how stressed so that you can become even more stressed about how stressed you are. On Thursday, the latest season of Fortnite dropped on most devices. On iOS, 
Well, those users can just suck it because they can't update their apps, which kind of sucks. But what sucks more is that iOS users also lost the ability to cross-play with non-iOS players. This makes logistical sense. Players playing the new season have new skins and new guns and the like, and iOS players without the new update would have no way of displaying them or reacting to them. So as The Verge puts it, Fortnite has been split into two different games now. There's iOS, and then there's everyone else. My son is one of those iOS players affected by this, but he's also a Switch player who is not, and come to think of it, I have no idea how that's going to affect his account. I assume that his Switch will get all the new stuff and he can change skins, etc. And his iOS account will just remain suspended the way it was before the split. But I'll be honest, I kind of want him to go spend some V-Bucks on iOS and see what happens on the Switch. These are all sorts of logistical nightmares that this could cause. And I admit, I'm tempted to try and cause them. But alas, I know at the end of the day, I'm just too lazy to do it. So, sorry listeners, and sorry to iOS Fortnite players, this really sucks for you, and you have Epic to mostly blame for this. We'll get more into this in the next story, but Epic poked the bee's nest, and now it's acting all shocked that it got stunned. Which is funny, because I've seen a few articles saying that Epic tried to sneak in this alternate payment. (laughs) No, they didn't. They didn't try to sneak in anything. They emailed Tim goddamn Cook and told him, we're going to do this, now what are you going to do? Well, Epic, you have your answer. I've often said that I'm not taking sides in this Epic versus Apple fight, but apparently Gizmodo is, and I can't say I disagree entirely. Basically, the reasoning is that Apple has every right to defend its App Store policies, but by threatening to pull Epic's developer license and sever connections with all of Epic, including the Unreal Engine that Epic develops, Apple is not only punishing Epic, but it's punishing any third-party developer that's using the Unreal Engine for their development. Because by pulling Epic's developer license, Epic can no longer maintain the engine for bugs and security updates. Now, the fact that Epic is doing all this to itself is not forgotten. Epic is basically poking a bear with a stick and then acting all surprised when the bear rips its head off. But Gizmodo is arguing that Apple has grown so big that it's a bear that needs poking, and I agree with that. Apple is a huge monstrosity that is using its influence in this case to force Epic into playing ball. Of course, Apple didn't get this big by not stepping on toes, but maybe we're starting to see that Apple needs to be taken down a peg or two. Because at the end of the day, the iOS App Store is a monopoly. There's really no way around it. You play by Apple's rules or you don't get onto a billion devices. Yes, Google's workaround is a pain in the butt. Yes, Google makes it ridiculously hard to sideload stuff, but Apple makes it impossible, which is why Google can beat this antitrust suit in this case, but I'm not really sure how Apple can. But the fact of the matter is that Apple is a services company now, and its one main service is apps, and you can bet it will fight tooth and nail to keep that sweet, sweet green juice flowing. But Apple doesn't seem to have a problem from a hardware perspective, as global smartphone sales dropped by 20% during the COVID-19 pandemic, and that's ungodly huge. That's one in five of every smartphone in the world being sold, but not actually getting sold. That's massive. And yet despite that huge drop in global sales, iPhones dropped by 0.4%. freaking 4 I mean, good for Apple. Apple is clearly killing it in the hardware department, and I suspect selling a $400 iPhone is a good part of that Samsung. 
speaking of Samsung, that company saw a precipitous drop of 27.1% of global sales. That's almost a third of phones that it sold last year staying in their warehouses this year. That's huge. That's hemorrhaging. That's life support time. Well, okay, it's bad. I think we can all agree on that. Gartner senior researcher Anshul Gupta points out that, quote, travel restrictions, retail closures, and more prudent spending on non-essential products during the pandemic are likely the causes. I'm just not sure I follow him when he says that phones are not essential items. I mean, like, what is he even talking about? School children across the country, or at least across my school district, which is the second largest in Illinois, by the way, went back to school online on Monday, except, whoopsie doodle, Zoom had an outage. When, you might be asking? Oh, around 7.45 a.m. on Monday morning. Fortunately, my children's classes were not affected, and they were both able to log in just fine. It looks like the outage affected the East Coast most of all. All the same, bad Zoom, no cookie. You know that kids are going back to school, and you know that remote learning, despite being the only actual sensible thing to do when 180,000 people are still dying of global pandemic, is already not a popular choice because parents want their babysitters back. I mean, sure, back in April, it was all happy, fun family time when mom and dad were working from home and the kids had their little Zoom calls with their little teachers, but after spending every waking moment of the past six months with their little asshole... I mean, they're little darlings. Parents are ready to send their kids back to daycare. I I mean, school as soon as possible. And Grandma, if that means you can't see the kids except over a Zoom call for the next 18 months, then so be it. These moms need to get back to their chai lattes and their yoga instructors named Harley and... What was I saying? Oh, right. Zoom had an outage on Monday, and it was fixed by noon. TikTok is at the center of controversy leading up to the September 15th deadline to sell to an American company or Trump will ban the app because no one on TikTok likes him. Microsoft is currently the lead contender, but here's a shocker. ByteDance, the parent company of TikTok, doesn't want to sell its interest in the U.S. It has instead filed suit against the U.S. government and appealed to the International Emergency Economics Right Act. Now, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know if that's one suit or two. I think it's just one, but... You know, law, whatever. Anyway, additionally, ByteDance has shut down its American operations, which means that 1,500 employees in the U.S., from content moderators all the way up to the CEO, are now just not working. TikTok has gone a long way towards moving its U.S. operations to the U.S., and Trump's policy is breaking that, which I get. TikTok is a Chinese company, and it may be feeding information to the Chinese government. We also learned that TikTok was using a loophole to steal MAC addresses from phones for its database. And even though it's not doing that anymore, we think, that's still some shady stuff going on. And this is like the epic Apple fight all over again. I don't really want to root for either party here because they're both kind of jerkwads. But overall, I guess I kind of have to root for TikTok because at least it's going through the motions of trying to look better, even if it isn't, you know, actually better. And at the end of the day, consumers should know what there is to know about TikTok and then choose whether or not to install that app. And as of right now, 94 million people choose to install it. Android Central's Daniel Bader, friend of the show, by the way, received a Microsoft Duo and was so impressed by the packaging that he did an unboxing of the device. 
That's nice. Unboxings aren't really my thing. They tend to just flare up old jealousy flames, but, you know, I'm new here. I get that. But really, the only reason I'm sharing this is because freaking everybody was sharing unboxings and first impressions of the device, but only the hardware, because I guess the software is still under embargo, or maybe it's the other way around. Whatever. They can't do full reviews yet. So we'll all just have to wait. But if you want to watch some gadget porn, the unboxings are out there. So get to it. LG has a new phone in the making called the LG Wing, which is a nifty-looking dual-screen device. Well, what's the big deal, Adam? You're already going to tell us about an LG dual-screen device later in the show, right? Well, yes, but no. Because this dual-screen device has a normal-looking screen with a second screen that, we think, kind of rotates out of it. The second screen is a 4-inch, 1-by-1 ratio screen. So, you know, it's a square. And it comes out the side of the main screen like, well... Like a, like a wing. Alternatively, you can hold the phone by the smaller screen and have a large landscape-oriented phone at the top, and it could be cool, but man, it is wacky. And we'll talk more about this during our chat with the Velvet, but man, I respect LG for doing this, and I hope something good comes out of it. Not necessarily the wing, because the wing, I'll be honest, seems a little ridiculous, but I hope that something new and interesting comes out of all of this. Or maybe the wing will be new and interesting. I'm not sure. I haven't reviewed it yet. LG, give me a call. Do you remember Blue? I sure as heck do. Back in my pocket nowadays, I was basically the Blue Beat reporter, and I remember testing one of their phones right around Halloween, and if I recall, that thing lasted for like two and a half days. It was insane. Of course, Blue has also put out phones that I literally could not wait until my review period was over. Anyway, that seems to not be the case here anymore, as Blue just launched a new gaming phone, the Blue G90 Pro, and it is my understanding that we will be reviewing it. Don't actually have it in hand yet, but I'm told it's on its way. The phone is powered by a MediaTek Helio G90T SoC, and GSM Arena is quick to point out that that makes sense since the G90 Pro is powered by the Helio G90T. But then, of course, it also points out that the Blue G90 earlier this summer was powered by a Helio A25, so I guess whatever. This phone will have a huge battery and liquid cooling, both of which are great for a gaming phone, but it'll also have 4 gigabytes of RAM, and I honestly didn't even think they made that little RAM anymore. Apparently they do, and a couple of hands-on that I've read seems to suggest that performance is still good, but you can bet I'll be suspicious of that until I actually get my hands on it. Oh, and by the way, the phone costs $200, so honestly, who cares how much RAM it has, right? This puppy could be a winner even if the RAM does put it in the upper part of the low-end phone spectrum. Regardless, if the performance is there, you're going to hear about it. And if it's not, Blue will hear about it. Either way, I'm looking forward to it. A startup called NDB is working on building a new kind of battery that lasts for several thousand years. Yes, you heard that right, a battery that lasts for thousands of years. And how are they doing that? Well, with nuclear waste, of course. <laughs> what? Yes. And yes, they're serious. And before you ask, yes, I vetted this article. I wouldn't take it seriously until I found at least a couple of reputable news sites reporting on this, and TechCrunch has a good write-up. Apparently the graphite from spent nuclear reactors can be used to turn into a diamond, an artificial diamond, surrounded by non-nuclear diamonds, and that releases a stream of ions that in turn produces electricity. 
I might honestly reach out to these folks for an interview because this sounds either interesting or insane, and often those make the best interviews. Anyway, the thinking is if they can figure out how to get enough juice out of this safely, safely being the operative word, this could essentially replace batteries in anything from your cell phone up to electronic vehicles. Another advantage would be to use these to power devices in space or in surgical implants. They never run out of power, or at least not within the lifespan of a satellite or a person especially if that person is being irradiated from the inside. They say the technology is perfectly safe, and they're looking for investors. Of course they are. They've already signed up their first beta customers, and they won't say who, but one is, quote, a leader in nuclear fuel cycle products and services, and the other is, quote, a leading global aerospace, defense, and security manufacturing company. Bottom line, if any OEM comes out with a phone that claims it never has to be charged... Maybe keep your distance or risk becoming the Hulk or Spider-Man. Ooh, Spider-Man. Audible, the audiobook company, is now selling a new subscription that includes everything but audiobooks. And right now you're wondering, what else does Audible have? And that's where we get into it. Because Audible has podcasts, except Charlie Sorrell over at LifeWire doesn't want you to call them podcasts because they're walled off behind Audible's app. Same with Joe Rogan over at Spotify. Same with a bunch of other podcasts over at Luminary or, you know, wherever. LifeWire argues that shows that are not freely distributed on RSS should be called something else because the name podcast implies that anyone can listen to it anywhere. I'm not so positive I agree on that. In my world, a podcast, air quotes, is a form of audio entertainment that doesn't come on the radio and isn't an audiobook. An audiobook, again, air quotes, is an audio story told from a published book. So the two are distinct in that way. But I'm not sure I'd count audio stories told from behind a paywall anything other than a podcast in the same way that I don't consider stories from the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal anything other than news articles. They're news articles that you have to pay to read, but they're still news articles. But Sorrell, and to be fair, he cites David Weiner, the creator of RSS, wants a new name for these, and they go straight to derogatory. Poo casts, VC friendly casts, etc. And I'm just not so sure you define media based on the delivery method. A movie at Netflix is still a movie. Even a movie originating at Netflix is still a movie. Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences be damned. You'll recall in an earlier episode I made the comment, Ugh, artists. And this is really just another artist railing against how the media is supposed to be consumed because they don't like the way that some big companies are doing it. And let's be honest, do I want podcasting to become siloed? No, but I also recognize that there are very good reasons to silo content from a business perspective. Do you think Spotify paid $100 million for Joe Rogan? Do you think they paid $100 million for his podcast? No, they paid for his fans and all the podcasts that they listen to. If, you know, Stuff You Should Know or This American Life or some other show that I listen to on the regular got siloed behind a paywall on the iHeartRadio app, then you can bet I would probably listen to all my podcasts on the iHeartRadio app. Or if the app sucks, I would limit my listening to just that show on that app and then go back to Pocket Cast and listen to the others. This podcast not brought to you by Pocket Cast, but, you know, call me. 
So, no, I don't want podcasting to go the way of streaming video. And yes, this is coming from the guy who pays for Netflix, Disney+, Plus, Hulu, Amazon Prime, and a bunch of other services that I can't remember right now, but you can bet they take my money. And that's stupid but probably left for a different conversation. Oh, CBS All Access and Peacock and, well, never mind. Podcasting is hard enough with hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there all vying for your ear holes. And by the way, I am very grateful that I have yours, at least for our time together. And I don't want to have to compete with paid services too, but the market suggests that some people are okay with it. And enough people are okay with it that Spotify thinks it's worth $100 million and Audible thinks it's worth $7.95 per month. And good for them. I won't be listening, but good for them. And I'm going to be frank here, and I've said this on other podcasts before, so at least I'm being consistent, but podcasting's biggest attraction, the free and easy distribution of audio content, is also its worst enemy. It frankly kind of sucks that podcasting is reliant on RSS because that, more than anything else, has held podcasting back in this podcaster's humble opinion. RSS is free and easy, sure, for nerds, but for normals, it's iTunes and Apple Podcasts. Do you want to know why 70% of podcast discovery comes from iTunes and not RSS? It's because no one knows how to search RSS. RSS doesn't have the tools built in for podcast promotion or discovery. RSS is the reason that I can't tell my listeners to subscribe and smash that bell because no one is listening to this that hasn't already subscribed. There's no real recommendation engine and no one is listening to this podcast after a related podcast from, you know, Tech Stuff or Android Central's podcast, both of which are really good, by the way. So you should go subscribe and look, I just became a recommendation engine. So while you might hate siloed content and love RSS, there are very good reasons why siloed content exists and why podcasting might be moving away from RSS. You know what this show is going to do? Go with the flow, baby. I'll use RSS until something comes along that makes it better for me and my listeners, and then I'll do that. So I get it, guys, but for God's sakes, stop being such artists and just be creators and let people consume your creations however they want. And more importantly, let them consume other people's creations that are only barely tangentially related to your own creations however they want. You just focus on making good content, all right? Peace out. Man, I miss my Garmin Fitness Tracker. I really do. The Garmin Fitness Band that I had was one of my favorite wearables that I've ever used because it offered GPS, which... I'll be honest, I didn't really care about. But it also offered continuous heart rate tracking, good notifications, and it lasted for a week on a charge. When the integrated band broke, I was screwed because you can't just replace that thing. So I went back to my Samsung watch and charging every other day. Meh. Then Xiaomi dropped the Mi Band 5, and I was intrigued. It was stupid cheap, and it seemed to offer a lot of what the Garmin did, but at like one-tenth the price. So I pre-ordered a review unit, and it came just about a month ago, and I've been using it ever since. Do I like this thing? Yes. Do I love it? Eh, just short. But that doesn't mean it's bad, so let's dive in. This is our Xiaomi Mi Band 5 review. Right off the bat, it's worth noting that, as the name implies, this is the fifth generation of the fitness accessory. It's been around for a long time, and also, as the name implies, it's cheap because Xiaomi makes cheap mobile stuff. Gotta appreciate that. In this case, the International Mi Band 5 comes in at about 50 bucks, which is a lot more expensive than its predecessors. The typical Mi Band price tag was in the neighborhood of 
$25 to $35. So this is definitely a step up. Not a huge step, but, you know, it's an extra trip to the ATM. Regardless, it's half the price of most other fitness bands out there and a third of the price of most fitness bands that you should actually buy so we can deal with it. As for the hardware itself, it's very simple, very basic. In the past, the Mi Band has always been removable, and that tradition continues here. I'll be honest, for the first two weeks, I didn't even know the band was removable. It's such a good, tight fit, I assumed that it was an integrated band. The fact that it's removable is a great thing, because I really question the durability of the silicone band, particularly the loop that the band goes through. I would not be surprised if that loop gave out by Christmas. So, delightful surprise number one, it's not integrated. Delightful surprise number two, I found an 8-pack of straps for the Mi Band 5 for like $13. Link in the show notes, so I am good to go. The body of the fitness band consists of a 1.1-inch OLED display with capacitive area at the bottom serving as a sort of home-slash-back button. You can swipe on the screen to move it up and down to get through the menus. There's also shortcuts to functions like weather and music control to the left and right. Speaking of left and right, it's very narrow at just 18.6 millimeters, and yes, I know I went from English to metric units there. Get over it. On the back, there's a heart rate sensor and pogo pins for a proprietary magnetic charger. There is no NFC or GPS. Wah, wah. Speaking of the charger, the battery life on this device is rated for up to 14 days. That was not the case for me. I needed to turn the brightness all the way up to see the face during the day, and it's summer, so, you know, I'm outside a lot. Given that, the battery only lasted six, maybe seven days for me, which is still awesome, considering the always-on heart rate tracking. As for step count accuracy, I didn't notice anything really obviously off. I don't have a ton of fitness trackers to compare it to, just my Samsung and Wear OS watches, and the step counts are consistent with what those devices reported. So, if you're looking for a step count accuracy, I'm not the right guy to ask. And that transitions us nicely into software. For most fitness bands, it's going to come down to the software, and I'm going to deal with the fitness stuff first because I need to get something out there. During my review period, Xiaomi pushed out an update that enabled automatic exercise detection, but it was off by default. When I went cycling, I needed to start, and more importantly stop, the exercise tracking manually. Since I discovered the update, I went out for an evening cycle, and guess what? Still no automatic tracking. Keep trying, Xiaomi. All that being said, if you're gung-ho about fitness, probably skip this one. While cycling, the watch will vibrate every mile you ride, which is a nice feature, and it also gives you your current speed and the length of your ride. The watch also keeps track of your PAI score, which stands for Physiological Activity Indicator. It's basically how many steps you've taken, what's your heart rate like, boiled down into a numeric score. It's another way to gamify health and fitness, so I'm down with that. I just wish it translated into something, I don't know, a bit more real. Anyway, moving further into the app, you get a lot of customizations like watch faces, and I was pleasantly surprised at the variety of watch faces available. I found a good half dozen or so that I liked. My main watch face is the photo face, which I used to display a photo of Neowise taken from the LG V60, so that was like triple layers of nerd going on there. The only problem is there's no way to save the photo face, so every time you switch to a different face, you need to find the same photo again when you want to switch back, and that's really annoying. 
especially because there are some really nice faces in there that will go nicely with the eight bands that I bought. One other delightful surprise was how accurate the lift to turn on the watch face was. It was like every time. I mean, like, not every time, but when it didn't work, it was like genuinely surprising. Like, one might say Xiaomi was even a bit too aggressive with this category, because it actually popped on several times I wasn't expecting it, often while laying down. Fortunately, Xiaomi has an option in there to turn off lift to wake during nighttime hours, so it wasn't too distracting while trying to sleep. And every other time, it was like, oh, that's on? Okay, no big deal. This is one area where a watch really needs to perform well because most other watches do not. I was actually prepared to not like this part, but it was a delightful surprise, so well done, Xiaomi. The menus are easy to navigate on the watch. I wouldn't call the menus in the app all that intuitive. It took me two weeks to find out where the band told you how long it had been off the charger. Overall, though, the software is not great, but it works well enough and holds some very nice surprises. Now comes a question you're probably asking yourself. Should I buy it? Well, that's kind of a tough question. The Mi Band 4 is just as functional as the Mi Band 5. The 5 adds a few other exercise tracking, an extra 0.2 inches of screen, but it also cuts down on battery life from Xiaomi's projected 20 days down to 14, which in reality is probably like, you know, 9 down to 6. The Mi Band 5 also gets about 50 nits brighter, which can make a difference in direct sunlight. But the Mi Band 4 is only $30 right now, while the Mi Band 5 is 50 And that's not that big of a deal, but from a percentage standpoint, that's like a 40% premium. Imagine paying, you know, $2,000 for a Galaxy Note 20 Ultra. You'd balk for sure. Overall, I'd say there's not really enough here to justify an upgrade, but I've never been hands-on with the Mi Band 4 either, so it's really hard to judge that. On paper, the Mi Band 4 for 30 versus the Mi Band 5 for 50 makes me think that the 4 is a smarter buy. The only thing that would make me balk is that Xiaomi actually did add the auto exercise detection to the Mi Band 5, but it doesn't really work, so you got me shrugging. Anyway, I've linked to both the 4 and the 5 in the show notes. The Mi Band in general is definitely worth picking up, but whether you go with the 4 or 5, it's kind of up to you. It's really an even toss-up. I've linked to a couple of strap packages I found online as well if you're looking to accessorize. And as always, you'll be helping to support the show. And I thank you very much. Our LG Velvet 5G review unit is in, and actually it has been in for a while. Sorry about that. So now I have some thoughts that I want to share, and this is actually a lot harder than I thought it would be. And there's a few reasons for that. But the biggest reason is that we've already talked at length about two of the best features on this phone. First, there's the software, and LG has included all the same software tricks into the Velvet that it did in this V60. The independent volume controls, for example. But even that is less important than the other one. The big one is actually what makes this phone so big, the dual screen case. And I already had a full segment on the dual screen case and its evolution over the years. Plus, 50% of my review of the LG V60 was based on that dual screen case, and this one is a little better and a little worse, again, as I've already said. So, what is there to talk about with the Velvet? It really comes down to just one thing, and this is the thing that I'm happiest about when it comes to the Velvet, it's the hardware. Because if you were going to put together a wish list of hardware to put into a phone, the result would look a lot like the LG Velvet. It's got the 3D arch in the glass with matching arch on the backside. It's got an almost flush camera module, 
well, three out of four ain't bad anyway. The cameras are arranged in a raindrop array, air quotes, with a 48 megapixel shooter, followed by a wide angle 8 megapixel camera and a 5 megapixel depth sensor. The flash is on the bottom, and the holes get progressively smaller, which is a pretty design. It's got a super premium feel that you expect from high-end phones. The back is a beautiful silver and glass finish. Overall, this looks like a premium phone. And while we're here, let's take a tour around the rest of the phone. This is a 6.8-inch POLED FHD Plus screen with underscreen fingerprint sensor. On the right side, you've got your power button. On the left, you have a volume rocker and assistant button. And on the bottom is the headphone jack, USB port, and single down-firing speaker. The earpiece serves as a second speaker, giving the velvet stereo sound. On the inside, we've got a Qualcomm Snapdragon 765G SoC with a 5G chip that runs on AT&T's barely existent 5G network. There's 6GB of memory along with 128GB of storage. The phone gets IP68 water resistance and MIL standard 810G compliance as well. All of this is powered by a 4300 milliamp hour battery. The design of this phone is really what's most striking here, and this is LG's first departure from the V series and the G series of phones. LG going forward wants to use more expressive names for their phones, which is a nice idea, and one that's worked in the past for various brands. More interestingly, LG going forward doesn't just want to roll out phone after phone with spec bumps every year. Rather, it wants to design phones from the ground up designed to address the wants and needs of the consumer. Or at least that's what the marketing material suggests. What's very true is that this design is a departure from anything LG has done in the recent past, and it's a very welcome change. Moving on to more practical concerns, I want to reiterate, you already know about the software. It's basically the V60 software, so there's not much more to talk about there. So yes, I'm going to yada yada a big part of the review. Sorry. Battery life is pretty good, easily making it through a full day. The dual screen does tug that down a bit. I'm not going to call this a two-day phone, but it's like a one-and-a-half-day phone. If you forget to plug it in one night, you'll make it till lunch the next day. And by the way, there is wireless charging included, of course. Just don't forget that magnetic adapter if you're rocking the dual screen case and don't have a wireless charger. The Snapdragon 765G is a very power-efficient chip, so there's no surprise there. Add to that the 4300 milliamp hour battery size and this slim package, and you've got a battery champ here. Moving on to the camera, we're once again decidedly in the mid-range space here. Photos are pretty good, in good light. I noticed when taking a phone on a boating trip, the water picked up all manner of color and pixelation, which is not awesome. The low-light photos have a typical problems of graininess and blown-out highlights, yada yada. There's also a night mode, which seems to just make night photos worse because it's a longer exposure, so things get really blurry. Overall, you're probably better off forgetting that night mode exists. The depth sensor also doesn't do you any favors in portrait mode, but it does allow you to get some killer macro shots. Going out blueberry picking yielded some great shots with a nice bokeh. Portrait mode on the flip side has really bad edge detection, especially when there are multiple subjects. Of course, this is an LG phone, so it comes stacked with a manual camera mode, and I was able to get some killer astrophotography shots. Pro mode also helps you lock in the focus a little bit quicker, and I'll be honest, I'm not a good enough photographer to get full use out of a pro mode, but it's there, and space is awesome. Enough said. Now we get on to pricing, and wow, AT&T and Verizon, yikes. They have this phone priced at $599 and $699 respectively, and that's without the dual screen case. 
This might just be bad timing for this review, but as I write this, I'm in the midst of my Pixel 4a review, which costs half of Verizon's asking price, and it's unlocked, and damn. Of course, that comes with its own limitations, most notably a lack of 5G, which is a fair counterpoint. 5G is driving up the price for everything these days, and that is another conversation. One could also point to the premium look and feel of the phone, and in that they'll find the $599 price tag, but again, the TCL 10 Pro is equally attractive, if not more so, and again at $150 less, and yes, again, just with 4G. If you're looking for a comparably specced 5G phone, well, how about the Pixel 4a 5G, which isn't out yet, but is still rumored to undercut this by $100. LG, or maybe AT&T and Verizon, who knows, just have this price point up way too high at the moment, and beating the 5G drum may have some justification, but not much, as I've said over and over, 5G just isn't there yet. 5G should not be the reason you buy or do not buy this phone. The one caveat to that is, if you are making a long-term purchase and plan to keep your phone for, like, you know, three years, then yeah, 5G, but also then get a flagship, and this is not a flagship. For a mid-range phone, this phone just costs too much. It's gorgeous, and it has dual screens, and it doesn't cost $1,400, Microsoft. So it's got that going for it, but honestly, there are better ways to spend your money, like... For example, the LG V60, which has a lot of the same qualities and for not too much higher a price tag. I will admit, though, this phone is more physically attractive than the V60 and the V50 and, frankly, the V or G anything. This is simply the most beautiful phone that LG has produced in years. Is that alone enough to pay a higher price tag? I'm not so sure, but I do appreciate one main thing. Taken by itself... The Velvet is a beautiful, if underpowered, phone. But when you add in our news story of the LG Wing, now it looks like LG is getting into the spirit of things and trying out new designs that are out there, and I love that. I love OEMs that play like this. Any OEM can make a Hershey bar with a decent camera, but coming up with truly unique designs that can also sell is hard. But I appreciate that LG is trying, and for that, it has my thanks. So that's going to do it for this podcast. Thanks for listening. I'd like to thank LG for the Velvet 5G review device and stress once again that LG was not given any editorial oversight. I would like to not thank Xiaomi for not providing a review device of the Mi Band, but I will thank Xiaomi for making it because it is just super. And I'd like to apologize to Dave Weiner for crapping all over RSS and podcast distribution. Sorry, bro. But most of all, I'd like to thank you for listening and for giving me the benefit of the doubt.